Good morning, church. Good morning. Beautiful, beautiful fall day today. Don't you just love it? Isn't it beautiful seeing the leaves uh, driving around town uh, the other day? Um, it's just, I'm glad fall has come early, uh, but it's just gorgeous. Uh, on the way in this morning, um, I was driving uh, in our uh, development and getting ready to exit, and, and the sun was hitting a tree at just the right angle, and it was just so, I, I backed up, took a picture of it. <clears throat> Probably people who live in the house thought, who is that weird guy out there taking a picture of our house? But I uh, just love the, the fall weather and the, the season, the colors. Um, just goes to show you and remind us that God is a, is a creative God. He's a diverse God. He, he, he made the four seasons. He made the world and everything in it, and we get to enjoy it. And so... Um, not quite looking forward to the snow, but I'll take the nice color in the leaves. Well, we're continuing our series in the book of John. I hope you brought your Bibles with you this morning because you're going to be using it. And we're going to be picking up uh, in chapter 19, kind of where we left off last week. But to kind of set the tone for this morning, I want to repeat a line that you might find familiar. He was crucified dead and buried. Who knows where that came from? Oh, well, that's a line in the Apostles' Creed, um, which was a creed formulated uh, in the uh, second century. And the creed actually was born out of other creeds that uh, we find in the New Testament. There are several creeds in the New Testament, by the way. But it's one of the greatest statements of the Christian faith ever expressed. And uh, if you're anything like me, you, you may have grown up in a church where the Apostles' Creed was said on a weekly basis. Is a great summation of the Christian truth. It, 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 it's a distillation of the Christian faith. It's a concise statement of what we believe. And it was crafted to help educate God's people. It, it declares and defends the central truths of the Christian faith, of the gospel. It served to educate and unify the people of God, and it helped to promote individual and corporate worship. And I mentioned that there are several places in the New Testament where we see some early creeds, perhaps one of the most uh, common or the one that's most easily recognizable comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul writes, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You see, Jesus' crucifixion, death, and burial is at the heart of the gospel. It's at the heart of the Christian faith. Now, some of you are saying, well, what about the resurrection? Well, don't worry, we'll get to the resurrection. Um, but let's not be in a hurry to get there. Because before you can talk about the empty tomb, you have to talk about the cross and everything that surrounds it. So as we look at the remainder of, of chapter 19 here, we need to remember something that I said a couple weeks ago, and that is Jesus is a sovereign Savior. He is a sovereign Savior. Everything that has happened 
including his betrayal, his arrest, his trial, and now his crucifixion happened because it was a part of the will of God. The prophet Isaiah wrote these words in Isaiah chapter 53. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It was God's will to crush him. And the apostle John makes it abundantly clear as we look at his gospel, and particularly uh, the chapter that we're in here today, that Jesus is the Messiah sent to save us from our sins. This morning, we're going to look at several Old Testament prophecies and their fulfillment, which in itself is an amazing thing because here we come to the end of Jesus' life and at the very end, in the last few moments of his life, in rapid succession, there is a reminder that Jesus has come to fulfill Old Testament prophecy that we can trust that he is who he claimed to be. And we can trust in what he has done for us at the cross. It's my hope that we're going to come away this morning with a greater understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And it would be absolutely marvelous if we walked out of this place this morning thinking to ourselves, maybe even saying out loud, Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you, Lord, for your word to us, for this opportunity um, to plumb the depths of what John has written so that we might know you more, that we might love you better, that we might desire to serve you with all of our heart, to surrender to you, and be used of you for the furtherance of your kingdom. Holy Spirit, be our teacher and our guide here this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to John chapter 19. We're actually uh, going to pick up with part of verse 16 and then look on to verse 17 and the verses that followed. And I'll have it up on the screen in case you don't have your Bibles, but I do encourage you to bring them with you. So John writes, so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place of the skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Now, when I read this, I'm, I'm familiar with the term uh, Golgotha, um, but I'm also familiar with the term Calvary. 
right? You guys are familiar with that, that Jesus went to Calvary. I'm also familiar with what John says here, to the place of the skull. So it just made me wonder, well, which is it? Is it Calvary, Golgotha, the place? I mean, what's, what's well, he kind of tells us here um, uh, that the place of the skull is, is, is Golgotha. But where does Calvary come from? Calvary doesn't show up in our English translations. It's actually a translation of the Latin, Calvaria which was a translation of the Greek word that we get skull from. And Golgotha is the Aramaic. So they're just different ways of basically saying the same thing. And I thought, since I showed you the uh, graphic the last time, we talked, and we were looking over here at the Mount of Olives and over here, um, the Garden of the Gethsemane. And you'll notice this is where Golgotha was located. And over here is the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Now, the close proximity to that becomes very important because remember, you know, they needed to take Jesus down off of the cross because the Passover was beginning. And so, uh, fortunately, they were able to move Jesus to the tomb here, which we'll get to in just a little bit. But this gives you an idea. Uh, typically, the, the march out of the, out of the city would have been about a mile. The Romans didn't um, invent the crucifixion but they perfected it. They, they knew how to put to death prisoners. It was customary for a Roman prisoner to carry his own crossbeam. Some of you, if you've watched the movies, you know, Jesus is dragging the entire cross, but in reality, they would carry just the, the horizontal crossbeam. They would be strapped to that. They would carry that. The posts or the vertical beam would already be in the ground at the place in which they would be crucified. So Jesus had to carry his wooden crossbeam for roughly a mile. And if you can imagine after being scourged like he was, how painful that must have been. And then once at the site, the prisoner would be laid flat out on his back with his arms stretched out on that crossbeam where he would either then be nailed uh, to the to the beam or have his arms and, and hands tied to it. And we know that Jesus was nailed to the cross, but we don't know for sure whether his hands were nailed, um, that, that the spikes went through his hands or through his wrists. Sometimes you've probably seen pictures of, of both of those. It's believed that if you were simply hanging there with nails through your wrist, that the weight of the body would just rip right through the hand. The wrist would be uh, a far more secure way of doing it, but you'd have to be really good at doing it so that you don't end up bleeding out and dying prematurely. A small platform was then also affixed to the bottom of that I-beam. And the reason for that um, was, was not an act of mercy. It, it was not, you know, uh, just a small, you know, kind of drop of mercy from the Romans to say that, hey, you know, we know you're having a bad day up there on the cross, so we're going to give you an opportunity to rest a little bit. No, that's not why it was there. It was there actually to prolong their agony and their suffering. 
Because when you're hanging from a cross, gravity is pulling the body downward. And in order to breathe, you have to be able to elevate yourself so that you can take air into your lungs. And so they would push up against that platform in order to take a breath in. Without it, death would come much more quickly. And crucifixion was a, was a gruesome death. It was a slow, painful death. And it was reserved for the worst of the worst. It was considered a curse to be put to death on the cross. Criminals, especially insurrectionists, would have been put to death on the cross This is why Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus is the Messiah sent to save us from our sins. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. I don't know if you ever thought about that. For the joy that was set before him. What joy? What joy is is he speaking about that Jesus was so fixated on that he was able to endure the cross and despising the shame that came with being hung on a cross? the Bible tells us it was you and it was me it was the souls of men and women that Jesus was able to go to the cross and endure this great humiliation and and suffering because he knew what it would produce he knew that it would result in the salvation of millions and millions of people down through the centuries. In fact, Paul writes of this very same thing when he says, who is our crown of joy, our crown of exaltation? Is it not you in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? He's writing to the church and he says, you're the reason. You're the joy that was set before him. That's why Christ endured. The sinless Son of God took our sin and our shame and suffered in our place to redeem us from the curse of the law. So let me ask you, have you been redeemed? Have you trusted in Christ and in Christ alone to save you from your sins? Do you realize how deeply loved you are? Again, I say, what a savior, that he would be willing to endure all of that. Verse 19, so Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, 
what I have written, I have written. I think perhaps that this was a dig against the religious leaders. But I don't think Pilate really knew what he was doing. I I think God was using Pilate. And here Pilate declares Jesus to be the king of the Jews in three different languages. It was as if Pilate was declaring to the world, Jesus is king. He's the king of the Jews. Now, of course, we know the religious leaders did not accept Jesus' kingship. They rejected him as king. What about you? Is Jesus truly your king? Does he rule your life? Are you living in obedience to his word? Do you seek to please him in everything that you say and do? See, king is is more than just a title. It's who he is. And we are his subjects. We are his people. And we must submit to his kingship. Look at verse 23. This is where we start to get into some of the prophecy It says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one place from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill scripture which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Now it was the practice of the Romans to crucify their prisoners stripped of their clothing. It was their practice to parade prisoners of war, especially um, the leaders of foreign countries whom they conquered to parade them through the streets naked. And they did so because it was an ancient practice that they believed was to totally humiliate the conquered ones or the criminals that were convicted and sentenced to death. And we can tell just from the description of what these soldiers were doing, um, the word tunic is not a word we use much these days, but it's basically his undergarments. So his clothes and his undergarments were stripped off of him, and they gambled for them. And the undergarment was typically made of of wool, sometimes of of linen, and and it could be quite valuable because it was a seamless piece of cloth. And and they gambled for them. And, And this is the first prophecy John mentions here, and it comes from Psalm 22, 18. What's interesting here is that the soldiers had no idea that they were fulfilling prophecy. 
I mean, some, sometimes, you know, uh, people uh, who don't believe try to get around all of these prophecies by saying, well, Jesus, you know, knew all the, these prophecies, and, and so therefore he, he, you know, because he knew about them, he could easily fulfill them. Well, that doesn't explain these soldiers, not that I believe the former is true anyway. It's not like these soldiers, you know, said one day, you know, hey, why don't we study the Jewish scriptures and uh, find out where all these prophecies are about Jesus. And then one day, uh, if we catch him and we, you know, uh, crucify him, we can take his clothes, gamble for him, and then tell everybody, you know, this was a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, that, was, that wasn't even in the realm of possibility. God's omniscience is so much more than just merely he knows what's going to happen. I mean, I mean, think about that for a minute. If, if God merely knows what is going to happen, but is powerless to do anything about it, what kind of God is that? Well, yeah, I knew this was going to happen, but I couldn't really do anything about it. I can't direct the course of human history. I can't ensure your salvation. I just know what's going to happen. This is so far beyond that. God knows what will happen because he is working all things out according to the counsel of his will. Jesus suffered humiliation so that we wouldn't have to. Again, I say to you, what a savior. Verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, this verse just amazes me. Understanding what Jesus has gone through, how badly beaten he was, and now he's hanging from a cross. And even now, his thoughts are not about himself his thoughts are directed towards the ones he loves. And when he says woman, he's, he's not being disrespectful here. It's a term, the word that he uses here is a term of endearment. And he uses this elsewhere in scripture. But when he says woman, behold your son, he, he isn't saying to Mary, Mary, look at me. He's directing Mary's gaze to John, the beloved disciple he says, woman, behold your son. And then he turns to John and he says, behold your mother. What he's doing there is just amazing. Even in the midst of, of, of dying, he cares so much for his mother that he entrusts her to the care of John. And he says to John, John, I want you to treat her like your own mother. Take care of her. Oh, how, how can you do that? In light of the injustice 
in light of the, 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 the rejection, the hatred, in light of everything that's happened to Jesus, how, how can he maintain such composure at the cross as to think about others? What a Savior. Verse 28. It said, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is a fulfillment of Psalm 69, verse 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Again, the soldiers had no idea that they were fulfilling prophecy. And all of these prophecies were being fulfilled because John, he, he, they were being fulfilled and recorded so that we would have no doubt that Jesus is the Messiah sent to save us from our sins. Notice Jesus' words there in uh, verse 30. It is finished. Jesus wasn't just saying, hey, you know, that's it. I'm, a, I'm about to die. I can feel it. It's coming. It's over. It's finished. That's not what he's saying here. He's actually speaking of his mission, why he came, the purpose for the cross, Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to redeem a lost humanity. And Jesus knew that he would go to the cross, that he, his blood would be shed for the remission of sins. And now he's come to the end of that mission and he says, it's finished. My work is complete. The Greek word translated, it is finished, is the word tetelestai. It's in the perfect tense in the Greek, meaning that it is an action that has been fully completed. There's nothing else that needs to be done. And it comes from the Greek word telos, which means the end or goal. And for the longest time, Greek scholars didn't have enough information to really understand what this word meant until there were some archaeological discoveries that were made where they found financial documents, bills of sale, and receipts in which was stamped the word tetelestai. And through that process, they came to understand that the word literally meant the debt has been paid in full. So Jesus, upon the cross, when he yells out, Tetelestai, it is finished, he says, the debt, the sin debt has been paid in full. 
There's nothing more that can be added to it. Nothing more needs to be added to it. It is complete. That's what John the Baptist meant when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Messiah sent to save us from our sins. Jesus died once and for all, never to die again. The writer of Hebrews tells us, you know, there are priests who stand daily offering sacrifices which can never take away sins. Jesus died once and for all, and for all time, never having to die again. There, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin because Jesus paid it all. And why did he have to pay it all? Why, didn't, why, didn't, why couldn't he have just paid some of it? Or even most of it? I'll tell you why. Because we couldn't pay a smidge of it. We couldn't pay any of it. And if Jesus had not paid for our sins, we'd still be in our sins. We would be doomed the penalty has been completely paid. The justice of God has been completely satisfied. And I, I can't stress this truth enough. Because if we don't believe that our salvation has been totally and forever secured by Jesus at the cross, we will spend the rest of our lives trying to earn God's love and favor. We will spend the rest of our lives trying to earn salvation, whether it be by going to church, coming to worship, putting money in the offering plate, prayer, being baptized, or, or taking Holy Communion, or being confirmed, whatever it is, that's what will try to do and we'll we'll know deep down how to, I, I don't think it's enough because it isn't I mean some people will will try to earn their salvation by wearing sacred underwear going on pilgrimages and even purchasing indulgences indulgences by the way for those of you who don't know that's kind of like a get out of purgatory card and yes, they're making a comeback. In some circles, I actually have an indulgence from 1966. But you can find them and buy them today. Actually, technically you can't buy them, but you can give a donation. We need to understand that the work of redemption is complete. There is nothing left to do or add to what Christ has already done for us. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Our responsibility is simply repent of our sins, believe in the Lord Jesus, and trust in the finished work of Christ upon the cross. Let's move on to verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation... And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might not be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not 
break his legs. Verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Now, the Romans would break the legs of prisoners on the cross when they wanted to speed up their death. Remember, if your legs are broken, you're not going to be able to push up on that platform to be able to take in air. You're going to die of asphyxiation very quickly. And this, of course, is another prophecy. Actually, there are, there are two here. The first is that none of Jesus' legs would be broken. Uh, it comes from Psalm 34, verse 20. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Now, you're probably familiar with that. But there's more to this prophecy than meets the eye. There's more to this prophecy than just simply stating what would not happen to Jesus. It actually confirms that Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God. You say, well, Paul, how do you, how do you know that? It's because of what God commanded his people in the Old Testament. If you were to turn back to Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, we read, And it shall, speaking of the Lamb during the Passover... It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Flip over to Numbers 9, verse 12. They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones, according to all the statute. For the Passover they shall keep it. So in celebration of the Passover, they would take the lamb, they would kill it, they would eat of it, but they would not break the bones of the lamb. And I'm not sure that, that they understood why at that time. I, I don't know if an explanation was given, but I, I didn't bother to, to look to see but in celebrating the Passover meal, the Israelites were commanded, don't do it. Don't break their bones. You see, Jesus is our Passover lamb. It's not just that God said, hey, you know, I'm going to lay this word out. None of his bones will be broken. And then it comes to pass. Yeah, whatever. No, it's a picture of who Jesus is. And if it's a picture of him as the Lamb of God, then we have to ask, what does he do for us? He's our sacrifice. He's the perfect, atoning sacrifice for sins. Now, it's an amazing prophecy, but the second prophecy mentioned here is just as amazing. It's found in verse 37. And this too, just, this too goes beyond just statement of fact. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him 
whom they have pierced. You have to go to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, to find the reference. The Lord says, God says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. So they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Now the spirit of grace here is no doubt a reference to the Holy Spirit. Every time in the Old Testament where you see God talking about the pouring out of, of, of a spirit, he's talking about pouring out of his own spirit. And the word pierced here actually carries the idea of being stabbed to death with a sword or, or a spear. But what's interesting is, is what God says. They will look on me whom they have pierced. Well, in what sense is, is the father being pierced? Because he goes on to say, and they will look on him and mourn for him as an only son. So you have the father, you have the Holy Spirit, you have the father, you have the son mentioned here in Zechariah chapter 12. But in what sense is the father pierced? I, I can't say for sure. Perhaps it's meant to be taken metaphorically. That in piercing Jesus, they pierce the father's very heart it was as if he was being stabbed to death so when we look at these prophecies sometimes there's a lot more than meets the eye and John adds an interesting comment in verse 35 he who saw it has borne witness his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. See, John wants his readers to know this stuff really happened. All of it. It happened. It's as if John is saying, I was there. I saw it with my own two eyes. I saw the soldiers gambling for Jesus' clothes. I saw them give him the sour wine. I saw them pierce his side. I was there for all of it. And the reason why I'm telling you this is because I want you to know this is the truth. And I want you to believe so that you might have life in his name. John is pleading with his readers and he is pleading with us to believe. And it's, it goes so much further than just a, a one and done kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I believe, now I'm gonna get on with the rest of my life. We live every day in submission to King Jesus. We continue to believe the gospel and believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Let's finish up reading verse 38 following. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, 
So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as, the burial, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. I don't know why I didn't advance, but there we go. John doesn't mention it here, but Jesus' burial is also a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In Isaiah 53, again, we read, his grave was assigned with the wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He was consigned to be a criminal, to be thrown on the ash heap, as, as criminal bodies often were, yet he was buried in a rich man's tomb, one that had never been used before. The Jews wrapped their dead in linen and then applied oftentimes um, ointments, precious ointments and perfumes, and they did so largely to mask the smell of rotting flesh. wasn't and isn't a pleasant smell. But even though Jesus was regarded as, as a criminal, that fact and the fact that he was laid in a rich man's tomb begins to almost foreshadow the resurrection because it's as if Jesus is beginning to move from being the guilty sin bearer into a state of exaltation where now he's in a rich man's tomb and three days later he would rise from the dead. I like what R.C. Sproul says about this. He says, this was like getting a burial with full military honors at Arlington National Cemetery. Rather than being thrown into the garbage heap or being left to the vultures, our Lord was exalted in the manner of his burial. But that was simply a hint of what was to come, the resurrection. The scriptures say it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So, as honoring as the linen and the precious spices and the ointments were to Jesus, they were absolutely unnecessary. A waste of good linen and good fragrance. Hallelujah. What a savior. Jesus didn't intend to stay in the grave. He intends to come bursting forth in just a few days. And we'll get to that. For now, though, know that John gives us these prophecies along with Jesus' words and his works throughout the entire gospel so that we might believe that he is the Messiah. 
come to save us from our sins. He was crucified, dead, and buried is more than just a line in a creed. It's the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of Christianity. I don't know about you, but when I think about that, and when I think about all of these prophecies that Jesus fulfilled here at the end of his life, it just makes me want to shout, hallelujah, what a savior. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning, for this opportunity to open your word. Lord, even as Callie prayed earlier, um, Lord, what a humbling prayer to stand here, to speak for you, to claim to speak for you, to hope that you would speak through me to your people. Lord, I, I pray that if there was anything of me, of my flesh, that came across this morning, Lord, that you would strike it from our memories, that you would imprint upon our souls the truth of your word, that we might glory in the cross, that we might rejoice in Jesus, our great God and Savior. Lord, we acknowledge you as our rightful king, and we ask that you would use us for the furtherance of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.